Hi, you're listening to the Law and Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law and Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, it's Amy Wan, and we are back with another episode of the Law and Blockchain Podcast. This week, we have a special guest, Carlton Green, who is an expert on AML and KYC law. Carlton, thank you so much for coming on the show. Amy, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So Carlton Green is a partner at Crow and Mooring's Washington, D.C. office, and he is a member of the firm's International Trade and White Collar and Regulatory Enforcement Groups. He provides strategic advice to clients on anti-money laundering and economic sanction issues, including for many digital asset clients. Carlton is the former chief counsel of FinCEN, or the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is responsible for administering the bank. Secrecy Act and is the primary U.S. AML regulator. Before joining FinCEN, Carlton served as the assistant director and attorney advisor with the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, where he directed targeting and investigations for more than 15 U.S. economic sanctions programs, including those related to Iran and North Korea. And before that, he was appointed to by the UN Secretary General to advise the UN Security Council on international sanctions against Al Qaeda and the Taliban. So quite the expert on this issue, Carlton. Thank you um, so much for for bringing your knowledge for our audience. Um, the topic that we're going to really be diving deep into today is AML and KYC regulations as applied to digital assets. So to start off, um, why don't you just give us, just for those of us who aren't super familiar with AML KYC law, can you just give us a, a quick, you know, couple minute primer on um, what the issues are and what the regulations say? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the primary anti-money laundering statute in the U.S. is the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, and the Secrecy Act applies to uh, financial institutions, and it applies actually to a pretty wide variety of different kinds of financial institutions. It includes banks, uh, broker-dealers, casinos, uh, and uh, money transmitters, and a lot of virtual currency uh, exchangers and other folks in the digital assets business um, find themselves getting swept into that last group of money transmitters. The Bank Secrecy Act does for regulated financial institutions uh, is it requires them to uh, do a couple of different things. Number one, it requires them to follow a bunch of different kinds of reports. Uh, probably the most well-known is what's called the Suspicious Activity Report, uh, which is where a financial institution can have an obligation uh, to file reports with the Department of the Treasury and specifically with FinCEN within the Department of the Treasury, um, when they see activity that looks like it may, um, you know, has indicators of criminal activity uh, or potential criminal activity. And so there's a variety of reports that companies have to file if they're subject to regulation under the Bank Secrecy Act. There are also records they have to keep of certain kinds of transactions. And then the other big requirement that they face is to have an anti-money laundering program. 
and you know basically that's a program that, that they use to meet all the other obligations they have under the Bank Secrecy Act and it typically requires them to have an, an chief uh, anti-money laundering officer responsible for administering the program um, and to have you know periodic independent audit of the program um, to conduct appropriate training for people and to have a system of internal controls to prevent the financial institution from being used uh, to facilitate financial crime. Great. Uh, so that's it in a nutshell. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, what's interesting about the application of all this stuff in the virtual currency space is that a lot of the entities that are regulated under the Bank Secrecy Act have become very experienced at, at implementing it. And it, it you know, AML obligations can be pretty complex. And so banks, for example, have spent enormous amounts of resources developing very strong anti-money laundering compliance programs um, that include all kinds of automated transaction monitoring. And they have very sophisticated programs of customer diligence and you know, alert scenarios to help them determine when they should file a suspicious activity report, like all kinds of stuff. Um, and broker-dealers, likewise, are very familiar with the regime and, and, and with complying with it. What really makes it interesting is now you have these entities in the virtual currency space being pulled into the AML world um, and starting to realize that AML uh, regulation is going to be one of the major hurdles they face to, to getting you know, new digital asset business models off the ground. Um, and so, you know, right up there with securities law, which has one of, been one of the other big areas of regulatory, you know, uh, of regulation that, that companies are having to kind of th through, they're having to deal with, with the Bank Secrecy Act um, and, and also sanctions, which is something else we could talk about too, um, you know, OFAC sanctions, but, but AML is a big one. Uh, and, it, you know, in particular, I think they're having to deal with the idea of collecting information about their customers, um, and they're having to deal with trying to identify when to file suspicious activity reports in the recurrency space. And one of the things that makes that challenging is the fact that you've got a very different technology that is driving financial transactions from what you've got in the banking space or the broker-dealer space. So in the banking space, you've got you know, swift messages and dealing with other banks and banks can talk to each other and you know, exchange information. Uh, and the payment messages often include all kinds of information already baked into the, to the payment instructions that allow you to meet your regulatory obligations. But in the case of digital assets companies, you know, you're talking about transactions that are often on a blockchain and companies are trying to figure out, well, how do I get the information I need to comply with regulatory obligations? How do I do the right amount of diligence I need to do in order to file SARS, you know, suspicious activity reports? What does transaction monitoring mean in the blockchain context? Uh, so you know, there's all kinds of questions that, that companies are struggling with um, about how to administer their, their obligations once they decide they have them. And then, of course, there's also the threshold question of, are we subject, you know, is my company subject to these obligations in the first place? And that's a complex question because, you know, in the digital asset space, you're seeing such a, um, such a, you know, wide variety of business models. You know, it's, it's, it's such a new space. You've got all kinds of folks just kind of rushing in different ideas about uh, what they want to do. So that's, you know, that's a lay in the land. 
Well, let's let's dive into that last question for a little bit in terms of figuring out when certain companies are subject to these regulations. It sounds like FinCEN has largely said, okay, with respect to virtual currency, um, these things always apply, although there are certainly virtual currencies out there that are designed for total and complete anonymity. And then there's, you know, this new crop of digital assets where it's like, okay, uh, let's let 100 people own fractional interests of, in, you know, Air Jordan sneakers. Like, what gives? What what questions should attorneys be asking? Yeah, uh, it's a really it's a really good question, right? So, maybe just to start with kind of the key the key test that I think is like the most important test that underlies everything in the uh, you know in the digital asset space about whether the bankruptcy act is likely to apply which is the basic test for when you're a money transmitter um and you know the that that basic rule is a person who is engaged in the business of receiving currency or value that substitutes for currency from one person and then transmitting it either to a different person or to the same person at a different location Okay, so that's like the that's the core test for whether you're engaged in the transmission. And one of the key concepts that really drives FinCEN's approach to virtual currency was that they made a decision very early on in their guidance to interpret a situation where somebody is in the business of receiving money from someone in fiat as fiat currency and giving them virtual currency in, in exchange as a transmittal of funds to another location, that other location being the customer's digital currency wallet, right? So if I receive fiat from customer A and, that, and then I transmit digital currency to a digital currency wallet um, in that person's name, FinCEN's going to treat that as, as money transmission and they're going to regulate parties that do that are in the business of doing that. Um, and so that drives so much of the concept here. Um, you know, more broadly, you mentioned anonymity, and it is a real issue. And, and I think it's really interesting to look at enforcement in the AML space um, as it's been applied to virtual currency. First of all, there has been a ton of enforcement, but, but the enforcement that there has been, I think, is undergoing a change right now. I think you're seeing you're seeing the, the beginnings of a real sea change in the way FinCEN enforces against virtual currency. I think in the early days, FinCEN's enforcement against virtual currency was focused very much on actors that, you know, where, where the service was kind of patently designed for, um, you know, to allow, uh, you know, to guard, protect anonymity for, for potential, you know, bad activity or criminal activity. So I'm focusing first on ones that really make no effort at all to comply with anti-money laundering rules. And so, you know, the, the, the Section 311 action against Liberty Reserve is an example of that. So that was an, an action that FinCEN took using authorities available to it um, under the, uh, to Treasury under the USA Patriot Act, um, basically to stop financial institutions from, from, from doing correspondent banking with that, with that entity. Um, Another example would be the enforcement action against BTC uh, that, that FinCEN took and, you know, parallel action by the Department of Justice. Like these are really actions going against actors that, that weren't making any effort by the rules. And what I think, what I think you're going to see more of in the future is, you know, like that's the first wave of enforcement, I think, is to contain the digital frontier, right? Like get the, 
you know, get the, I don't know, I don't know what the analogy is, like get the rustlers and the, you know, and the bandits out. Um, the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> the low-hanging fruit, like the ones that are obvious backers, you know. But I think the next wave is going to be enforcement against parties that, you know, are not trying to, are not existing to facilitate criminal activity like buying drugs on the dark web or, you know, um, other stuff like that. They actually are, they, they honestly want to provide a legitimate service, but they just have complied with their federal obligations, um, you know, as a money transmitter, or they've, they've taken some steps down that road, but not other steps. Uh, you know, they haven't done everything they need to do. And, and just give you one example, I, I, I hear about, uh, I've heard about that, like I often hear folks in the virtual currency industry talking about whitelisting, you know, we're going to whitelist these customers. And I'm always fascinated because that term, if, if I, from what I understand of it is, is that well, we're going to look at customers once when they first come on board um, to our exchange or company. Um, and then that's it, you know, once they look at them, we're like, ah, oh, this person's legit, you know, then they can transact. Um, but the Bank Secrecy Act actually goes way far beyond that. I mean, the, the, the whole notion of the SAR obligation, AML program obligation, is that you're going to be paying attention to the transactions flowing through your company um, and the types of transactions that your customers are engaging in, um, not just when you first bring them on board, but, but over time. You're going, to be, you're going to be engaging in transaction monitoring um, to look for uh, you know, indications that that customer's activity is not legitimate. And, and one of the key ways to do that is to understand um, the types of transactions your customers would normally be expected to engage in uh, and building a model of what normal and legitimate activity looks like for different categories of your customer base so that you can then determine when those customers are deviating from what looks like normal behavior. Um, and, and, and so that there's like a whole other, you, you know, um, you know, the BSA AML obligations are more fulsome than, than I think some companies are thinking. I mean, they're, they're manageable. They're certainly very doable, but, um, but, but there's, it's more than just kind of onboarding someone and making sure that, that, you know, you've looked at them when they first bring them on board. And so I think that's going to be, I think there's going to be a wave of enforcement coming where, you're seeing people who are trying to be legit, like they, they honestly are selling a real service and they're not trying to help facilitate criminal activity, but they haven't registered or they haven't established AML programs or they've done those things, but they've done it in a very deficient way. And I think that's where you're gonna see some of the fine tuning. I mean, I think that's really interesting. I, I completely agree with you. I hear a lot of people talking about whitelists and blacklists, um, but I, I don't often, I don't, in fact, I don't think I've ever heard of a crypto or, or digital asset company talking about doing the ongoing monitoring. I mean, maybe they're just not talking about it and they're just deferring it for down the road, but I guess we'll see. Which, which brings me to the next topic, right? You know, a lot of these are startups and a lot of them, um, well, you know, in 2017, I'm sure a lot of them raised a ton of money, but right now in the middle of crypto winter, there near, isn't nearly as much money flowing around and some of these are truly cash strapped startups. So, you know, how are you counseling um, those digital asset companies that, that want to be compliant, but have a lot of regulatory hurdles um, that, 
that they're facing. You know, it, it sounds like a lot of this will cost a, a good number, a good amount of money, and they're going to have to hire compliance teams and attorneys. What's what's the best way that you've seen startups navigating all this? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there. Well, one one important thing to talk about is, um, you know, one of the questions that that we had talked about, kind of. Um, uh, when I was thinking about coming to, to speak with you on, on this stuff is, is, is what are the biggest regulatory hurdles that people face? Um, and, you know, it's important to point out that in the AML world, there are really two different categories of problems that people face, two big hurdles that they face, right? So the first hurdle are federal obligations. They're, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act. How do I comply with that? And what, what's a sensible way to do it? But the other big problem that we hear about all the time, and it's a huge problem, is this 50-state problem, um, which is that you know there are requirements, there are money transmission requirements at the federal level for you know registering with FinCEN as a as a uh, as a money transmitter or other form of money services business or MSB. Um, but but it's also true that that most of the U.S. states, I think nearly all, it's like 48 out of 50 states, have their own money transmitter laws, um, and there's no, uh, you know, there's no preemption right now. Um, and so, you know, not only do you have to worry about, am I regulated at the federal level, but you've got to try to figure out, are you regulated as a money transmitter in each of the states that you're operating in? And that is the number one issue that is driving cost and difficulty for digital assets companies is trying to figure out, trying to deal with all the different um, potential states, state regulation that they have to face. Um, and, you know, there are some kind of neat efforts afoot to try and address this problem. Either there is a, a multi-state uh, multi pilot project that's, you know, been, um, that a number where a number of states have kind of banded together to try and allow people to register in multiple states at once. Uh, you know, there are, um, you know, a lot of states kind of putting out guidance in this area to try and make it easier and help people understand their obligations. Um, but it is still a massive issue. Um, so so I, I think that's the first thing. Um, the second issue for the, uh, you know, from a purely federal standpoint, uh, you know, things that you can do to reduce your lab, I mean, reduce your, uh, your costs. Well, some of it depends, you know, there are things you could do to your business model that might give you um, better insight on your customers and make it easier to, um, uh, you know, easier to kind of keep track, uh, you know, monitor customer transactions and meet your suspicious activity reporting obligations um, or to, uh, you know, reduce the risk overall. Um, and, and and those are things, for example, like, you know, you could have uh, only conduct transactions in virtual currency between uh, people who are customers of your company, right? So you could stand in the middle and basically say customer A and customer B can, can exchange virtual currency through us, but they both need to be customers. And if you do that, then, and you, you conduct customer due diligence and bringing them in, then you're going to have really good insight about where um, who people are transacting with, and it'd be much easier to meet your reporting obligations. But but that's not going to work for every business model. And you know I've seen other variations too. Like some some digital assets businesses limit the exchanges that they'll work with, 
and they are going to deal with exchanges that they know are um, in a jurisdiction that regulates, uh, you know, has strong regulations for anti-money laundering. Um, and in particular, I, you know, I, you know, some are limiting to companies that are, you know, in the U.S. registered with FinCEN as a money transmitter, you know, known to have a strong ML program, um, and 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 it's a way to kind of hedge their risk, right? Because they know that if they're getting uh, an incoming uh, digital assets from that exchange, um, that 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 exchange is also doing its own transaction monitoring. They're also doing diligence when they need to for for transactions that meet the threshold to collect customer information. You know all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so there's a lot of different strategies that folks can use to try and limit um, their exposure. And at the state level, you know, one of the things that I've seen is um, companies kind of starting out their operations with a limited number of states that they're going to operate in. You know, so that's another way to kind of not have to go and figure out your registration status in all 50 states. Um, is if you're, you know, if you want to start off small, you might have a group of, you know, five states that you're going to operate in. And that way, you only have to meet your federal obligations and the obligations in those five states. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of different strategies out there that digital assets companies can use, but, but there's still big problems, you know, I mean, right. An example, ICOs, right, is it, <laughs> <laughs> like it, the mega example, because, um, you know, FinCEN has put out guidance suggesting that, uh, if you, you know, if you do an ICO and you accept uh, investor money and then you provide coin, you know, you provide them digital tokens in exchange, um, that they're going to treat that as transmission. And um, gosh, what, you know, if that's a one-time thing, you're providing them tokens once um, and all of a sudden, not only do they have to worry about federal registration and creating an AML program, but they have to think about all the 50 states where their interests come from. Um, so it's it's a really um, it's a it's a it's a strange space. And the other thing that I think is interesting is the potential crossover between FinCEN and the SEC, mm-hmm. where you know FinCEN has said that, or has suggested that, um, if something is a uh, you know even if something is a certificate for a digital certificate for a commodity maybe or you know or or security like if it's operating as a substitute for currency then that's potentially something they're going to regulate, you know? And so that gets to your point about, you know, fractional ownership of assets, which, which I know a lot of companies are really working on right now, trying to kind of tokenize real estate and, you know, baseball teams and, and everything else. <laughs> um, and, you know, the problem is when you do that, uh, you know, under the current regulatory structure, boom, you are instantly turning yourself into a money transmitter. Uh, and, you know, not to mention potentially an issue of securities, right? But, right. But you're you're immediately turning yourself into a money transmitter um, if those things are easily redeemable for for fiat currency and can act as a substitute, uh, you know, a, a digital currency that is easily convertible into fiat. Interesting. You know, you you brought up the issue around you know differences um, between. Uh, you know, domestic and, and foreign treatment. And I would say, you know, on the whole, I think that U.S. digital asset companies seem to take regulations pretty seriously. But, you know, what, from what I've seen, companies abroad seem to be much more lax um, where they, you know, 
basically do business worldwide everywhere except for the US because regulations you know are actually enforced there um, do do you have any reaction to this well you know some cautions right like one one important thing to keep in mind is that um, you know, even a foreign located company, to the extent it is selling into the United States, um, uh, you know, they're going to face regulation to the extent of their U.S. activities. Um, so merely, merely locating yourself abroad does not put you outside the reach of the Bank Secrecy Act. Like, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, and, you know, the, I think the other thing thing you, you, you touch on that is really important. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, virtual currency exchangers and other digital assets companies, if they are regulated under the Bank Secrecy Act, um, they face a, an, an enormous problem in, in some cases if they're accepting uh, digital assets that are coming from exchanges that are not regulated for AML and about which they know very little, uh, and it, you know, because just precisely because in many cases those assets can be very hard to figure out who the asset actually came from you know and if you can't if you don't have a way to reach out to that company and find out like confirm yes this is coming from a customer and we can confirm this customer is so and so and they have provided information to, to establish their identity like if you can't do those things it makes it much more difficult to conduct um the kind of transaction monitoring that that um, FinCEN is used to for other regulated uh, MSBs. I mean, think about some of the other big MSBs in the space that aren't, you know, that the, that are the right now are the model for MSB. Big MSBs like money uh, money transmitters like Western Union, right? I mean, they have very sophisticated AML programs and and you know MoneyGram and you know all these other big companies out there. Um, you know, they're doing sophisticated transaction monitoring. Right. And so the, the, there is, I think there's a legitimate concern that FinCEN is going to, is going to be expecting it, you know, you know they'll, they'll scale it to the, maybe they'll scale it to the different, to the risk that, that each company faces and the, the scope of its operations. But, but they're still going to expect, you know, transaction monitoring and, and filing up SARS. And that's a, it's an easy way to get in trouble. And the penalties under the Bank Secrecy Act are very high. You know, and, and that doesn't even touch on sanctions. I mean, sanctions is a whole other important discussion here um, because the interesting thing about sanctions is that, you know, from a civil law standpoint, it's, it's basically strict liability, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that if you deal with somebody who is uh, a sanctioned party, um, you know, you're potentially liable and it comes down to kind of OFAC's prosecutorial discretion, whether they try to come after you for that civil penalty. Um, and there are a lot of sanctioned actors that are very active in the digital process space. You know, a lot of nation, uh, you know, a lot of nation state actors, a lot of criminal organizations that are subject to OFAC sanctions, um, you know, are out there and they're using digital assets to, um, to evade sanctions controls, to hide their financial activity. Um, sometimes they are um, engaging in, uh, you know, ransomware attacks and theft of digital currency. Um, you know, they're active in this space. Sometimes they're creating digital currency to try and evade sanctions, <laughs> you know, right? Like the Petro that, that Venezuela created. Um, and, and so, 
you know, that's something that companies really have to be concerned about too. And the fact that the, some of the, um, you know, anonymity or, or pseudonymous, you know, pseudonymous aspects of uh, virtual currency um, can make it really hard to comply with sanctions abolitions. And, and that's a real thing. Right. You know, the other big thing, the other big trend lately in this space, I feel like is stable coins, right? So Facebook has announced Libra, China has announced they're going to do their own cryptocurrency. And right now it seems like every exchange is trying to put out its own st stable coin. But I'm I'm quite sure that AMLKYC must uh, apply to this type of digital asset. Um, has there been a lot of discussion or analysis around that in the AMLKYC sphere? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, it, you know, it, again, it all comes back to kind of that essential test, right? Which is if you are accepting fiat currency from somebody and you are giving them a token exchange, um, you, you know, chances are pretty good that you're going to be regulated. Um, now, you always have to look at the specific facts, and sometimes there are arrangements where somebody is, the role somebody's playing, it, it takes them out of that equation, you know, or where they've only got one side of the equation, you know, they might be dispensing tokens, but they never accept funds from customers, uh, you know, or they play a, an, an interface role, you know, connecting two people together, but they never handle any of the money. Um, so there's all kinds of ways you might not be swept in, but, but baseline test is, if you're accepting, uh, you know, currency, you know, uh, currency or value that substitutes for currency from one person, and um, transmitting the same thing, you know, some kind of value uh, to that same person or to a third party, um, and 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 so, and, and that can be true even when you're exchanging one of uh, virtual currency for another. And this is again all at the federal level, right? So. If you're buying an, a new kind of token and you're using Bitcoin, that can still be money transmission where you are, you know, they are accepting your Bitcoin and they are sending you uh, a different kind of token at a wallet that can hold that token. So I have a question about, you know, the, the state of the regulatory ecosystem around you know, digital assets and AMLKYC, you know, on the security side, there's certainly still a lot of guidance that needs to come out. Um, and, and there's still a lot of questions in that space. Um, on the AMLKYC side, you know, you guys have been dealing with these topics for much longer. Um, how, how mature do you think the regulatory guidance is in that space? And how much do you think there is left to suss out? Wow, um, that's a great question. So I, I think um, one of the things that, um, you know, I think FinCEN got some, or, or, or there's, there was some advantage to them um, in that the Bank Secrecy Act regulations for money transmission were, you know, pretty, easily adaptable to the virtual currency space. You know, they were written pretty broadly about, you know, exchanges of value and transmitting value, you know, terms that are big enough to kind of sweep in um, things like digital assets. Uh, and so in that respect, uh, you know, they had an easier time of it uh, at the beginning uh, than, than I think maybe some of the, you know, some of the work that had to go into the, the security space to think about how we're going to regulate some of these these tokens. But 
having said that, there's still so many business ideas out there. Um, and there's also situations where a very, um, uh, you know, uh, strict application of the way FinCEN has interpreted uh, money transmission in the virtual currency space could really jam you up like ICOs, you know, where somebody's like, like we were talking about, like a one time, somebody is going to do a time issuance of tokens and then they're out of the business. Um, you know, should that person have to go through, you know, registering as a money transmitter and having an AML program and, you know, all this stuff. Um, so I think for them, the, the, a lot of the issue is going to come around when it comes into, you know, thinking about all these different business models. Um, that, that they haven't had to deal with yet. And maybe to some extent, uh, the potential crossover between sanctions enforcement and securities enforcement. Um, and I know that's something that those agencies talk about. It sounds like a lot uh, and are really gonna kind of think through that, that those permutations. And then just frankly, the, the enforcement side of things is gonna be a big deal, um, is, is trying to strike that right balance between not squelching innovation, um, but making sure that people understand and abide by their obligations and figuring out how obligations are going to apply in this uh, in this context of, of chain-based uh, digital currencies. I mean, a great example of that is something that I think FinCEN's been really focused on, um, which are the uh, what are called the transfer and travel rules uh, under the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which is that when you are sending a payment message, um, you know, so if you're going to make a transfer of virtual currency um, from someone's account at one exchange to, to the account of another person at a different exchange, um, you know, there's certain information that you're supposed to include in that, uh, that transmittal. And, and that model of including that information is really based on, you know, the banking system where you have payment messages and things like SIFs, you know, where you can fill out, you know, 50 some odd fields to explain all the different things about the transaction, who the originator is, who the beneficiary is, what it's for, you know, anything you want to say. And that doesn't really exist the same way in the virtual, uh, you know, currency space. Now, there are people working on stuff like that, and that's really exciting, but, but there's a lot of kind of technical hurdles where, where the, some aspects of the laws were just designed for a different type of financial institution. And, and, you know, transaction monitoring, again, is another one, right? Because um, you know different things about your transacting parties than you know in the banking space. I mean, if you're talking about a blockchain-based digital, you know, virtual currency, you, you can, you may not know who owns a particular, um, you know, address, but you can see every transaction that that, that party's engaged in. And, and so, you might be able to do analysis and there are companies that are you know providing that kind of analysis so it, it it has some challenges but it also offers some interesting opportunities um to to know things that you might not be able to know in the normal state so it's it's just going to be a, a learning process for the companies that are learning about these rules and having to deal with them for the first time and regulators that are having to adapt concepts they've been dealing with for decades to a very different context right well, so Carlton, what is one piece of advice you would have for other legal professionals who are counseling, you know, virtual or digital asset clients in AMLKYC issues? Um, the, I guess the key piece of advice I would have is to start thinking about it. 
you, you know, one of the things FinCEN's been hitting over and over again in their guidance and in you know public remarks is um, don't don't tell yourself, well, we're going to get the company up and running, and then we'll deal with the AML once they're profitable. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and I, you know, we chuck off that, but like that is so common. There's so many people doing that right now. Yeah. Um, and you know, they're clearly very concerned about that. And and the other thing I, I guess I would say about that is, you know, apart from Pincent's concern about you know all the things that might happen in the interim before you get up and running, um, is that you may, you need to understand early on the ramifications of, of the AML ramifications of what you're proposing, right? Because they could affect your ability to deliver to investors, for example. Let's say that you're going to issue a token and you've got an investor, you're going to do an ICO, and you have a prospectus for the investors and you say, hey, here's what we're going to do and here's how it's going to work. And that's the basis on which they're investing. <clears throat> um, and if you haven't thought through the AML, you find out, holy moly, we can't do it that way because the, you know, the AML rules are not really going to allow us to do it that way or mm -hmm. do it that way, but it's going to carry all kinds of consequences we didn't tell our investors about. <laughs> um, so you can get into trouble. And so I think one of the things I've counseled a lot of clients is, you know, start thinking about that stuff early on, you know, before you've, um, uh, before you started taking on money, ideally, uh, or a lot of, you know, or, or, or been kind of making representations about how things are going to work, think about your AML obligations and, and how you want to be regulated. If you're, if you don't want to be regulated as a money transmitter, you should really think that through and structure your, your offering in a way that's not going to be subject to regulation. Um, and if you are going to be regulated, you should understand what it entails and make sure you're making appropriate representations. Fantastic advice. Wow. Well, Carlton, you're clearly an expert and a fountain of information in this space. How can people find and follow you? Well, um, you know, I'm, my bio is on Rolls, uh website and, um, you know, that's a great way to kind of reach me and you can, you can see, um, you know, stuff we've written on, on uh, AML space. Uh, and I think there's even some congressional testimony uh, out there on the bank secrecy. So, you know, that's a, that's a great way to kind of fuck with um, what we're putting out in this space. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm always happy to help folks and, and end up talking to folks all the time with, um, it, it's been a great learning experience, kind of learning about the different business models that people are coming up with in this space because it's so creative. And I think, you know, a, there's going to be some number of these ideas that change the world. It feels very much to me because I'm old. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it feels very much to me like the, you know, like the dot-com uh, boom, right? So like some of those ideas are going to succeed and some will fail, but the ones that succeed are going to change everything about how we live and interact. And, um, and that's really exciting to be a part of that. Fantastic. Yes, it is a constantly changing, very, very creative industry. <laughs> well, Carlton, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your knowledge and, and contributing to the legal discourse around these issues. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's really, um, it's, a, it's a, just a fascinating area of the law, and it's, it's really exciting to, um, to be practicing in this area. So thanks, for, thanks again for the opportunity to speak.
Of course. So that's it for today's show. I'm your host, Amy Wan. This show is brought to you by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. And if you want to learn more about the Business Law Section, you can head to AmericanBar.org forward slash groups forward slash business underscore law. Thanks so much and tune in for the next show. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.